the specter of Tintagel. Sometimes on a stilly night from misty summer seas, there comes a riding clean and white, two knights on palfreys. Avoid you then that haunted dell that skirts the rocks of Tintagel. to GoonPod, the podcast about the Goon Show and the Goons themselves. My name is Tyler Adams. Uh, now, when two Kiwis are brought together on a podcast, there's a danger of a serious vowel disorder, as Barry Cryer would have said. But having said that, the two people you're about to hear have lived in the UK for so long that any major fush and chops type accents have been refined. I am joined by the uh, comic book artist, writer, cartoonist, Roger Langridge. Hello, Tyler. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. Now, Roger, um, I must first and foremost hold my hand up and say that I'm not particularly uh, into comics. We follow each other on Twitter, and I love some of the stuff that you post on Twitter. Uh, because I'm a bit of a, a numpty when it comes to, to, to comic books, um, I have a, a good friend of mine, Andrew Hickey. Uh, he's, he's well into that world. And I did message him and just um, ran your name past him. And he said, oh, he said, I love, I love the, uh, the, the work you did on uh, Straight Jacket Fits. Uh, yeah, that's a blast from the past. That's um, some of the earliest work I ever did with another New Zealander, in fact, um, okay. David Bishop. Yeah, he was the writer. Right. Okay. And and you've been involved with things like Fred the Clown, the Muppet Show comics. Things yes, like the that. Muppet Show comics is uh, probably what I'm best known for. That's um, uh, a book I did for a couple of years. Uh, it's sort of around 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. That got some awards, which was nice, and um, got got me sort of noticed by people who, which you know, it sort of led on to other things. Sure. I mean, people must think I sound insufferably rude not to not to, <laughs> to know this stuff, but it's just not my world, you know. Um, and there's no, there's no, nothing. I mean, the, the thing about cartoonists is there's like three of us who are household names, and and we'll never meet any of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've already brought up the fact that, and obviously your accent will have given away the New Zealand connect- connection. So obviously, I am. Uh, I was born and brought up in New Zealand. I think you're slightly older than me by about uh, five or six years. But um, yeah, I was born in '67, so oh, okay. uh, I don't know how that shakes down, but yeah. So I was born in Greymouth, uh, which I'm sure yeah. you, you are I aware of Greymouth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, not the not the not the best place to live in New Zealand. I think it's fair to yeah, say. Yeah, no, it, the name sort of gives away that it's not the bustling metropolis you might wish for. <laughs> um, so I I I pretty much uh, hightailed it out of there as soon as I could. But where are you from? Well, I'm from Auckland, so um, ah, yeah. uh, the, you know, obviously it was a bit more urban and um, a bit more connected to possibilities with media and what have you. Uh-huh. Um, 
But as a comic book artist, because there was no comic book industry in New Zealand, um, certainly nothing that paid, uh, apart from a few sort of uh, editorial cartoon positions. If I wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, leaving the country was really my, my only option. Uh, so I came to London in 1990. And um, apart from a, a short break, I've lived here ever since. Okay. I was just trying to think of any New Zealand cartoonists uh, other than Murray Ball. Um, I... In the comic book world, there are a few that um, people who outside of com- are outside of comics might not have heard of. Uh, Murray Ball's obviously the biggest one because, you know, he, he sort of cracked the mainstream with uh, movie adaptations of his work and appearing in Punch magazine and what have you. But mm. um, Dylan Horrocks is pretty well known, a critically acclaimed cartoonist. He did a book called Hicksville, which is set in New Zealand. And it's about a small town uh, which has a library in it, which features all of the comics that every great cartoonist would have made if they'd been able to, if the industry hadn't sort of ground them down into paste. Um, and right. it's this lighthouse where it's all kept. Uh, and it's sort of like a, a utopia for, com- for comic books and cartoonists. Uh, and it's a, it's a really, really good story. So there's him. There's a few people who have uh, sort of done stuff for 2000 AD and what have you. A guy called Martin Eamond, who's no longer with us, but in the early 90s, he did a lot of quite exciting, sort of very sort of heavy metal inspired work. Um, so, yeah, there's a few of us around. Allow me just to sort of puff my chest out with pride for a moment, because um, getting back to Murray Ball, in 1986, there was a young New Zealand cartoonist of the year competition, something like that. And, um, and he was one of the judges, or he was the judge. And I, I, and I used to do cartoons and, you know, still occasionally dabble. But I sent this um, comic strip that I created, which was a, which I, I cringe, but it was about, it was like a talking pine cone. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, I won. And I think I, received something like $75 and assigned some signed Foot Rock Flats books. And, um, and that's my biggest achievement in life to date. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. I don't know the rest of the details of your life. I'm sure that, I'm sure there must be other. <laughs> my, my children. It's weird about the Pinecone connection because there's a, um, a friend of mine who I used to do comics with in New Zealand in the early nineties, Cornelius mm. Stone had a character called Desmond the Pinecone. And oh. as a kind of in-joke, I've snuck Desmond the Pinecone into every comic I've drawn ever since. Um, so... Uh, oh. <laughs> my learned friends might be having a word with Cornelius. I think Because <laughs> it was pub- my, my cartoon was published in the national newspapers in 1986. He obviously saw that and pinched the idea, clearly. Well, I, Desmond the Pinecone was a real pinecone. He had him in a pot in his bedroom. So ah, <laughs> I right. have met the real Desmond. Fair enough, then. Okay. Okay. Uh, so obviously, you know, we are here because we both love the Goon Show. I'd be interested to find out how, how did you, because <clears throat> as I say, you're a little bit older than me, but how did you, what's your history with the Goon Show? Yeah, I think the first time I encountered the Goons would have been the last Goon Show of all, paradoxically, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which would have been on TV, I guess, when I was about six or seven or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, and my dad was not a huge Goon fan, but I think he was a casual fan. Um, he had a brother who was very into the Goon Show, an older brother. So he was sort of aware of it through him, I think. Um, but I remember seeing the last Goon Show of all on TV when it was broadcast and being completely baffled by it, but really enjoying the silly voices, which I think was the level I was appreciating it on yeah. at that point. But yeah, that was um, my first exposure to the Goons. Um, and then I sort of got into Spike Milligan post-Goons mm. um, through, well, I think at first through Bad Jelly the Witch. 
Me too. Which in New Zealand, if yes. you know the Saturday, the, the the thing that they had on Saturday, oh, sorry, Sunday mornings, every yes. every morning on, on the national radio program, they had a, a children's program, which lasted for a couple of hours. And Bad Jelly the Witch was on a couple of times a month, mm-hmm. as I remember it. Mm-hmm. It was it would always seem to be on whenever I turned it on anyway. And uh, that was Spike reading the story. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with Bad Jelly the Witch. Oh, oh. Mind where you're shitting, you silly boy, said a voice from underneath Tim's bottom. It was a little worm. You big silly. You nearly squashed me flat like a shoelace. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Worm, said Tim. What's your name? The worm came right out of the ground. And he was wearing a long, thin shirt with the drawings of red noses and overdrafts on it. My name is Mudwiggle, said the worm. Oh, Mr. Wiggle, did you see a cow wearing a straw hat yesterday? Yeah, said Mudwiggle. She trod on my tail, so I kung-fooed her into the river. Ho, ha, ho, 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 moo, she went. Oh, you must be very strong, said Tim. Oh, my, I'm the strongest worm in all the world. Do you know why? Because I eat mud. Lots of mud. And I had some of his books as well. I had... The Milligan Book of Records, which uh, was one of these heavily illustrated books that comedians were doing at the time, um, a little bit like the Python books, not as lavish, perhaps, mm. um, but it was sort of cut and pasted stuff that Spike had addended and little bits of uh, his sort of random scribblings and stuff all sort of collected into a book. Yeah. He did quite a lot of those, but I remember that one in particular. And I had a couple of his poetry books. I think I had Silly, Silly Verse for Kids and a book of Millig Animals. Mm. Um, and that had the bald twit lion in it, the Book of Millig Animals, which was another of his children's stories, which I think is maybe the equal of Bad Jelly the Witch. It's really, really daft and funny. I can't, I've read it out loud to my kids sometimes, and I always, I can't stop laughing when I'm reading it. Yeah. It's just hilarious. But you're absolutely right, because I, I, uh, Bad Jelly the Witch was the first exposure I had to Spike Milligan, and it was from the Sunday morning uh, kids program. Uh, yeah. That, and it, it, was, it was always that being played, and also Captain Beaky. I seem to remember that yes. always being, um, and um, Sparky's Magic Piano. Yeah, yeah, there were a few Sparky stories, but I remember Sparky's Magic Piano mm, um, mm. with that weird sort of synthesized piano voice that the piano spoke in. Freaky, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was... <laughs> nightmare fuel. <laughs> <laughs> They'd call that um, hauntological these days. From years but weirdly, ago. it's the stuff that stays with you. But I suppose because it freaks you out. Sparky, oh Sparky. My parents took me to Spike Milligan's one-man show when he was touring New Zealand, uh, early 80s. I think I was about 14 or 15 at the time. Okay. Um, And I think I laughed that night harder than I've ever laughed in my life before or since. Okay. You know when people say your sides ache when you laugh? Mm. That was literally the case the next day. My ribs were hurting. They were bruised from laughing so much. I was physically sore. And I, if you ask me what he did, I, I can only remember a few tiny bits of it. I don't remember very much. I remember that there was this, on the stage, there was this human-shaped figure sitting on a chair covered in a tablecloth or something, or a red sheet. And at one point, Spike stuck his hand under the sheet and started groping around in the figure's lap, and then he started sort of vigorously pumping. Nice. And uh, then he whipped the sheet off, and there was this life-sized model of then Prime Minister Robert Muldoon oh. um, with a big pepper mache head. Um, and he was vigorously shaking hands with it and grinning at the audience. Um, 
uh, and that, and I remember that he he wouldn't leave the stage. They couldn't get rid of him. He did about five encores, and eventually the crew just shut everything down and turned the lights out. And Spike just came down to the front of the stage and sat down and started talking directly to the audience, oh. telling sort of stories about Peter Sellers and stuff. It was amazing. It was such a good night. And he obviously, um, you know, he had good days and bad days, and I think that must have been a good day because you know he was just so switched on and so yep. alive. Yeah. Excellent. It was amazing. Oh, I'd love to. Anyway, after that, I decided I was going to track down everything Spike did. Um, I remember recording the Muppet Show episode that he mm. appeared on with my cassette recorder, just recording the soundtrack from the TV and playing that over and over again. And uh, yeah, tracking down the goon shows and trying to get into it because I'd, I'd heard a few and it was really hard to understand what was going on because I didn't know the characters. And I didn't understand why when this character said something, it was funny because it was, you know, related to who they were as a character and I needed to sort of unlock the code. And that's mm. when I recorded the Spectre of Tintagel because I thought that would be a way to unlock it, really, to just have an episode and play it a few times and try and sort of figure it out. And okay. so that was when I started recording them regularly yeah. and why I wanted to talk about this, this one in particular today because it was the first one that I did that with and it was sort of my way in. Great. I mean, it's, it, and it's good. I'm glad of it as well, because it's, it is a great episode. It's very atmospheric. It's probably the most atmospheric Goon show that they, that they ever made. But I'm glad of, because um, it's not one that people really talk about. It's not one of them that was, you know, on an LP or anything like that back in the day. Uh, so it's um, it's a good one to talk about. We'll come on to that in, in, in a minute. I just wanted to ask you, actually, before we do, I've been trying to kind because because I knew, you know, when I was a kid, in the late 70s, early 80s, growing up in New Zealand, I knew Peter Sellers through Pink Panther films. And I knew, um, obviously, Spike, as I said, from Bad Jelly. I've tried to sort of remember what I knew Harry Seacom from. Was Harry Seacom on telly much back in the day or, or not? It's a really good question. I, th I think I might have seen him on Parkinson. Mm. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't know. I know he toured New Zealand quite a bit because he was always appearing in stage shows and things. Right. I had a, a friend whose girlfriend was a, um, uh, a maid in a hotel um, where Harry Seacom was staying and she got to meet him and um, he was doing some sort of tour at the time. And right. uh, she said what a lovely man he was. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I really can't remember seeing him on TV much, but he must have been because I, it wasn't like I didn't know who he was. Mm. Yeah, because I, I had an aunt who was a um, really big fan of his music. She had a load of his LPs. I, in the fog of memory, I, I remember seeing, and this might be a false memory, but I'm sure that there was a Harry Seacom special, t television special. Called oh, actually, yes, that rings a bell. There might have been like um, specials around his, you know, that sort of built around him with guest stars and things. Yeah, and I'm sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in my memory anyway, this... <laughs> you know, is that there was one called uh, oh, something like goon, a pun on the word goon. So goon with the wind is what's yeah, yeah, in yeah. my head. Okay. And I, in my memory, I asked my dad, why is it called goon with the wind? Is it, is it cause is he Scottish? And that's why he pronounces it <laughs> goon. And that's when my dad must've explained to me who the goons were. Right. And, and, and my dad always, because my, my, my dad liked the Goon Show, uh, and he would always, he'd always tell the same joke from the Goons. It was always the same one. It was from 
the episode, I think it's Tales of Old Dartmoor, when they're on a floating prison, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think Eccles is up in the crow's nest. Land ahead! I should have said that sooner, shouldn't I? <laughs> That my dad would always quote that and roar with laughter. That was his favorite joke in the world. <laughs> uh, so it's a but, pure radio joke, too, isn't it? Because it absolutely it wouldn't work on screen. It's got to be something that you don't see coming. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So that was uh, Goon with the Wind, I think, was a, was, a, was a Harry Seacom special that aired sometime in the early 80s. But, uh, but anyway, we're talking today about the series seven episode the specter of tintagel uh which was broadcast on november the 1st 1956 so it's almost exactly 65 years ago it's one of the shows that sort of alluded to earlier it's not it's not one of the better known goon shows but i think it's a remarkable piece of work and it's a it's it's to say it's very atmospheric it's quite affecting it's very memorable. It's almost cinematic. Yeah. Mm, mm. I And uh, I, I remember as a kid, I would listen to these in the dark a lot of the time. I'd sort of play them in bed. And when you've got that eerie music and, and um, Valentine Dial's sort of sonorous tones at the introduction, there's no obvious jokes in it. it it's really scary. It's genuinely quite frightening. Mm. Um, and it sort of sets the mood for the, even though it, it lightens pretty quickly, it sort of sets the mood for what's to come quite a bit. Yeah, Valentine Dial, uh, he was in a whole bunch of goon shows. I've, I wrote down, there's about, um, how many are there? I've written down about, so he's, he was in, um, obviously he was in this one. He was in uh, a The series, Canal is one he was in. The, the Canal, absolutely. Um, the uh, Silver Doubloons from Series 10. He was in uh, The House of Teeth. Yes, uh, yeah. Dr- Drums Along the Mersey, The Reason Why, which was the... Um, the secretary it's one of the did non-audience ones, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, he was he was in a series three episode, the tragedy of Oxley Towers, which was no longer out there. He was one of the guys they drafted in to cover when Sellers was off in um, yeah series nine, and who was Pink Obo. Uh, so he's yeah, he sort of does bunch. the drip pipe thin role. Yeah, he's. Oh, I mean, he's amazing. He he was he was part of their sort of unofficial goon rep company in the fifties because he was in shows like a show called Fred. Uh, yeah, with Sellers and Milligan, uh, he later appeared as Lord Fortnum in the bed sitting room uh, on stage, back you know in the in the sixties. Okay, yes, I was having a look on Wikipedia earlier, and he's in quite a few absolute classics. He pops up in the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. He's in Laurence Olivier's Henry V. He's in Brief Encounter. Um, it's yeah, just a, a, an amazing career. And um, one thing that. He was in the, for, for some reason, although I've heard it so many times, I never twigged, is the radio version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He plays Deep Thought. And I don't know why I didn't notice the voice, because I know his voice really well from the goons. I think perhaps just because my mental image in Hitchhiker's was of this huge computer that didn't have any human, human attributes. Okay. Um, yeah. But when you hear it, obviously, it's Valentine Dial. It couldn't be anybody else. But yeah, so he, he, he's got a key role in, in this episode, Spectre of Tintagel, as... Uh, the butler of the of the house that well, well it's kind of the canal again isn't it it's segan showing up in a house and valentine dial trying to get rid of him 
Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, <laughs> pretty much the same plot. It's just got, you know, different details. Yes, yeah, because Seagoon in, in this episode, he's called King Arthur Seagoon. Yeah. For, for, for reasons. Uh, and he, <laughs> well, he thinks he's, he thinks he's descended from King Arthur, doesn't he? And um, he hears some story that King Arthur's treasure is meant to be buried in the grounds of this ancestral home. And as it turns out, it's um, regimental plate that Blood Knot yes. has uh, found out is buried there. There's uh, a bit quite early on where we get to meet uh, Grip Pipe and Moriarty, and and they're not quite at rock bottom yet. They haven't quite mm. descended to the depths they reach in the later episode in the later series, but uh, they're certainly on their way down. They're living in a cave at the bottom of Dead Man's Cliff, yep. and they've got the sea lapping around their ankles. And Moriarty's singing songs about his dirty socks and wishing for a bar of soap. So he's clearly well on his way to his final <laughs> fallen state, you know. Yeah. Um, even if he's still broadly human here. Um, yeah, because they're they're playing house agents in this, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, you know, I always say this every time. I I'm listening to the fully restored versions of these these episodes, which have bits reinstated that have been edited yeah. out for overseas sales and things like that. Uh, and it's it's just uh, wonderful listening to some of the the topical references that creep into these shows that have been you know, put back in. And there's a sequence between Grip Pipe and Moriarty. Grip Pipe wants Moriarty to, to take down a letter that, yeah. he can, that he can send to the editor of the Times. Uh, and then at the end, he says, uh, sign it Liberace, and then they'll print it. Yes, that must have been a reference to a specific incident, but Times sort of um, moved on so much that we don't know what it was. Well, I, I had not in the back of my mind, I knew that Liberace had sued a British newspaper in the 50s right. and i and i knew that i couldn't remember the details so i looked up and uh, sure enough yeah so he liberace was touring in the uk came over in sort of late september 56 so about a month before this show would have been written there was a a, a columnist called william connor uh who went by the 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 name cassandra uh, i've the, heard of cassandra yes uh, in the daily mirror i think he was kind of a um, showbiz type, gossip thing yeah yeah that sort of thing and in the Daily Mirror around this time, he wrote uh, a piece on Liberace. And I'll just read out what he wrote. Because <laughs> for 1956, it's a bit... It's a bit <laughs> on the nose, is it? On the nose. <laughs> um, he, he described Liberace as the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter. Everything that he, she, and it can ever want. A deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavoured, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, reading, but people read between the lines and, and uh, uh, inferred that uh, he was uh, yes. <laughs> suggesting that uh, Liberace was uh, a friend of Dorothy. Yes, back then. yes. It's scarcely a double entendre, is it? It's it's, it's more of a single entendre. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Liberace basically sued the Daily Mirror uh, for 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 libel, um, and he famously wrote in a or sent a telegram. What you said hurt me very much. I cried all the way to the bank. <laughs> Uh, ah, sweet revenge. Yeah, you know, that would have been talked about at the time that this show was written. Yeah. Um, as I say, it's, it's things like that that just, you know, I love picking out of these shows. Yes, it's a window into a t- totally different world. You mentioned Grip Pipe and Moriarty. Were they your favourite characters or did you have specific 
favorite characters? I think Bloodnock might be my favorite character. Um, All right. Um, yeah, I love him in this episode. He just sort of shows up at the manor, having followed the arrows on his suit. Um, yeah. And <laughs> he's kind of like uh, Wimpy and Popeye or, or W.C. Fields in that he's mm. this totally amoral character. He's got absolutely no moral center at all. He's just totally ruled by his appetites. There's something really compelling about that as a character. Uh, although I suppose the goon's world is kind of an amoral world. It's, it's like none of them are especially moral characters. Even Nettie, who sometimes makes the right noises, he's pretty easily swayed and he's often more motivated by the idea of personal glory than by any sense of honour. Um, mm. I, I suppose Eccles is the nearest to a true innocent, but even he's not above betraying Blue Bottle sometimes. It's, it's kind of a fallen world, which is part of the appeal, I think. Just kind of, I suppose it's a post-war world, isn't it? It's, it's slightly shabby, it's slightly seedy and a bit deprived. And people yeah. have had to make compromises to survive. Yeah. And that's the world that they're in. They've they come out of the war, Milligan particularly disenchanted with humankind. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's the, apart, like you say, apart from Eccles, there's really no noble characters. Take a letter to the editor of the Times. Wait till I've written it, will you? Oh, I... uh, let me see. Dear sir, I must complain about the abnormally high tides in Cornwall. Is this a record? Uh, sign it Liberace, then they'll print it. Right. <laughs> now, uh, I, sh- I should ask you, actually, how has the goons sort of informed you or influenced you in terms of your creative endeavours? I suppose I'd always wanted to be a cartoonist from about the age of six, but it was after um, discovering the goons that I had a much better idea of what kind of cartoonist I wanted to be because it was... Um, you know how I think Harry Seacombe described the Goon Show as cartoons of the mind. Mm. It's that kind of thing. It was strangely for something that's a totally auditory experience. It was a big visual influence on me because the pictures in my head are what I've been sort of trying to work towards ever since. Okay. And, and the way he used, the way Milligan and Stevens and his collaborators used the medium to do things that you could only do on radio mm. is something that I aspire to do with comics. I try to make things in comic form that you can only do in, in the comic book medium because it's got things you can do that you can't do in film and that you can't do on radio. Um, the way that it uses, the way that the comics medium uses space as sort of a stand-in for time, you can show all of these different moments in time simultaneously in a comic page. Um, actually, the Goon Show almost did that in one episode there's an episode called the treasure in the tower where Mm. there's two narratives going on simultaneously one set in the present day yes and one set in 1600 Mm. and Mm. um events in the present day affect events in 1600 the whole time but but even on radio you can't show them exactly the same time whereas in comics maybe you could and that's something that i've often wanted to do a goon show comic because i think you can do things with comics that would be very much in the spirit of what the goons were trying to do and that would be a really good one to adapt i think because you've got this these twin narratives happening simultaneously and you could show them both at the same time and you could show the events in 1957 affecting the events in 1600 at the same time yes which with the best will in the world you can't do on radio although they got really close 
Mm. Um, so I, I just think that would be a fascinating exercise. It's something I'd really like to do. Echo, save me! What? What? Where are you? In the water in 1957. Oh, I can't help you then. Anna. I'm in 1600. <laughs> you can't be in there in that 1600 there. I can see it quite clearly. Ah, but in 1957 you got all them good natural health spectacles. <laughs> well, you can borrow mine and be the man sees no one touches them. And then you can pull me up. I don't know what he means, but I can't do that. I'm not really, I'm really, I'm, I'm really not here. What do you mean by the good man? I'll tell you my good man. <laughs> if, if, well, this is 1957. You said this is 1957? Say yes. Well, if this is 1957, I'm dead. Then why are you standing up? Um, well, I'm not in... Oh, oh, oh I'll tell you I'm running up. Because I'm in 1600 and you're, you're not born yet. Oh, wait till I tell my mum that my dad went off coming. <laughs> Was someone like Hunt Emerson an influence on your actual artwork? I, I think it's more of a question of having similar influences in common. Okay. I really love Hunt's stuff, and um, I've been privileged enough to meet him a few times, and I've got one of his originals. But, oh, right. um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a great guy. But um, I didn't know his work until I was sort of in my early 20s, so it wasn't right. a conscious influence. Right, I see. Um, okay. Yeah, but I think we've got the same influences in common. We're, we're both really into some of the, the humour artists on British comics, like yeah. Ken Reed, the guy who created, uh, what's his name, Roger the Dodger and the Beano and, and Frankie Stein and all these other creations. Um, and the Goons themselves, of course, was an influence. I was, I was privileged to be able to, to actually um, redraw some of his Goon Show art for the Goon Show Appreciation Society as well. When they were, um, uh, a few years back, they, they sort of remastered their sort of fading Xeroxes for their mastheads and what oh, have you. yes, yes. And um, they had these very degraded Hunt Emerson drawings that they wanted touched up. Um, and I approached Hunt to see if he still had the originals. And he said, no, he didn't have any copies of them. Oh. But he, he gave me his blessing to sort of redraw them. So mm. I did that. And I think they're still using that on, certainly on their Twitter feed, they're still using it. That mm -hmm. that was yes. basically originally drawn by Hunt and then sort of re redrawn by me. So oh, well, yeah, that's, that's the only time I've collaborated with him. But, you know, it was nice that it was on a goon thing. Absolutely. Did you ever see, I'm sure you've probably seen the Tully goons recordings of the telegoons i've seen bits of it i couldn't persevere through an entire episode no, i'm afraid but no yeah yeah because i've had a few people you know doing this a couple of people have suggested you know it would have been better if they'd done a a goon show cartoon rather than the puppet show you know could you have envisaged something like that being more effective i yeah it's difficult because every time you nail the goons down visually you're going to turn some people off. It's going to be jarring to some people because the nature of drawing things is that you have to lock these things down and the infinite possibilities of your imagination are, are necessarily limited. So, you know, it's, it's never going to um, 
it's never going to be everybody's goons. And I think that, you know, again, it's, it's like if I was adapting a goon show to comics, it would have to be totally rethought. You couldn't just sort of re- animate the recordings. You'd have to rethink it for the medium because it's a different medium and it's got different strengths. And there are things that work on radio that won't work on screen and things that work on screen that you can't do on radio. Yeah. So yes. it would have to be sort of rethought from the ground up, I think. Mm. So, I mean, potentially, I mean, it could work if the right people came to it with the right attitude. It's, uh, it's an open question because it's never been done. No, and it, 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 it's time has passed now. I, I don't think it would find an audience now necessarily. Uh, yeah. Of course, of course, <laughs> uh, the you know the, the principal artists are no longer with us. But um, yeah. it would have been an interesting. I, yeah, the Telegoons was. I don't know the the puppets. I mean, Neddy looked okay. Neddy kind of <laughs> more or less looked like you could imagine Neddy looking. Uh, I really didn't like Blue Bottle or Minnie or Henry. In fact. Minnie and Henry, just just thinking about it, they're not actually, apart from, I think, one line by Minnie in a bar scene in, in this episode, Minnie and Henry aren't in this episode, which is a um, bit, bit disappointing because I always love their, their yeah, little sequences. Actually, I was trying to think why it was, there, there was an, definitely an ingredient missing and that's probably it, yeah. I, I didn't notice it the first few times I listened to it. Yeah, because yeah, I'm thinking, because Valentine Dial is playing the butler of this uh, ancestral home, a role that Crun would have fulfilled normally, so yeah. uh, I guess that's why uh, why they weren't in it. Although this, I don't think Crun has his agency, you know, he wouldn't have been trying to bump him off. Oh no, the the standout sequence in this episode is for me anyway is is Blue Bottle with uh, Segan, Blue Bottle doing his usual you know, being on call to yeah. assist Neddy, uh, but then finding out that there's some uh, ethereal wraith <laughs> supposedly. Yeah, you know, not liking it at all. But there's that sequence where Seagoon offers him an orange. Oh, tar, Captain. I like oranges, Captain. Shh. Keep quiet. Why are you keeping me quiet, my Captain? Shh. Captain. Why have you turned the light off? Shh. Shush me, my cat. <laughs> I don't like eating oranges in the dark. Well, don't eat it. And I don't not like oranges eating in the dark. Well, what do you like doing in the dark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, one of the questions I always ask first-time guests. Roger, is what's your attitude towards the music? So, so Gail, Dre, and Ellington. Did you did you <laughs> yeah. stick with them, or did you fast forward through them, or, or what? I suspect I'll get angry letters about this. Um, but yeah. I not only skipped the music, but my cassette recordings from childhood cut the musical <gasps> items entirely. Um, my dad wow. brought home this enormous box of recycled cassette tapes, and I think there were tapes that had been used that were used on musical albums um, that had been wiped and relabeled. So each side was about 23 minutes long and you couldn't get an entire episode on one side unless you cut the music while you're recording it. So that's what I used to do. Yeah. I used to sit next to the radio with my cassette recorder and when the musical items came on, I would hit the pause button and then I would release it when the musical item was over. Uh, so I was left with the opening bars and the closing bars and a bit of applause for each song. Mm. And I quickly realized that's all I wanted. Um, 
Mm. That was I, I had I had the context. I had the gags leading up to the musical item. I had any gags that I might make after the musical item. I had a tiny flavor of the music itself. That was all I needed, really. So I haven't. I mean, I've I've got them on MP3 now, um, and I've edited the MP3s to cut the musical items as well. Oh my so. god. <laughs> I've, I've got pristine copies that are untouched but i don't listen to them i tend to only listen to the edited ones <laughs> <So>. blimey, <laughs> i mean i was I, I, I don't think i've spoken to such a charlatan because <laughs> i used to so record, i'm a heretic oh yeah i used to record them but i you know keep the music in and uh, yeah i used to often fast forward through the tapes you know because they were on tape but as i've got older and my musical sensibilities have have sharpened uh, I tend to listen to the to the music now because sometimes you'll miss something because occasionally some of the cast will sing along with Ray Ellington or or whatever. Uh, so yeah, know, there's they, a few they, I remember where they did that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, the music in this episode, the music in general, is fantastic in terms of there's there's the very distinct sort of violin that plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really atmospheric. Oh wait a minute! No, I just realised this should be played a little bit better. Play something nice. Some of your best stuff. You know what I mean? What have oh, you? And um, the, the, the music at the beginning that opens it is really, you know, it's, it's full on um, orchestral movie arrangement. It's, it's, it's the proper stuff. There's a few other little sort of references that crop up. Are you aware of the, of the phrase? Because at one point a character says there's something nasty in the woodshed. Yeah, I think that's the first time I'd heard that phrase. And I mean, I've, I've heard it pop up a few times since, mainly through Milligan. I think it pops up in his war memoirs a bit. Right. And um, there's the the Divine Comedy song, something nasty in the woods. That's right, yeah, great song. Um, well, yeah, because I, I was aware of it from Cold Comfort Farm, which, oh, right, okay. which was a, a novel from the 30s or 40s, um, and it was dramatized for TV, I think, in the. 90s is really good dramatization, and they refer to something nasty in the woodshed, and it's and it's come to mean something that you mustn't speak about, something that's that yeah. that, re- that remains unspoken, and usually with some kind of crude connotation <laughs> to it. Yes, uh, yeah, that's fairly explicit in this one when there's something nasty in the woodshed. I think the phantom struck again, yes. which is another euphemism that they used to use a lot. Absolutely, and they mention there's a reference to Peter Kavanagh. Now, Peter Kavanagh was uh, an impressionist. Yeah, I assume uh, from the context that must must be what he was. Yeah, um, I think Peter Sellers used to get compared in the in his early in the early days. He got compared to Peter Kavanagh for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, but I I've not. I must admit I haven't heard any Kavanagh impressions. But he he would do impressions of you know popular people in, on, on the radio, people like Gilbert Harding, um, Eamon Andrews. Uh, even the Duke of Edinburgh, which surprises me, because okay, that's um uh, quite I don't know brave for the time, yeah, because um, that was you know really not done. I think I remember Sellers getting into trouble over doing Queen impressions. Yeah, because he did Baroness um, Boyle de Spudswell on the, yeah, the yeah, episode yeah, yeah. the Starlings, where he did sound uncannily like the Queen, albeit slightly distorted. But yeah, uh, I'm guessing that the Duke of Edinburgh impressions must have sort of been later in Kavanagh's career, maybe not in the 50s. <laughs> maybe. Um, in fact, there's a reference to Prince Philip in this actual episode, isn't there? Yes, um, yes. I forget where, but yeah, I remember. Seagull's going on about potentially the, the fall of the House of Windsor. This is it. You've got uh, Sellers playing a policeman. Yeah. Who arrives at the, at the house and Seagull's sort of raving by this point. And the voice that Sellers chooses to do for the policeman is 
very and i suppose it's that kind of colorless officious voice that sellers would 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 do um, yeah. to, to denote policemen he thinks that seagoon's office chump what did you say your name was sir king arthur <laughs> king arthur that's right yes well, you better come with me, Your Majesty. There's a <laughs> plain van outside that all our King Arthurs and three Napoleons have ridden in. <laughs> That's good enough for me. Yes. Of course, this means the end of the House of Windsor, of course. Yes. Prince Philip will have to go in. <laughs> you come with me, Your Majesty. It'll all be all right in a moment. You I just come outside. I think I'll make you Prime Minister. You've got the right bill, you know. That's very kind of you, Your Majesty. Will you you fancy Ireland? Wales yes. is doing that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Seacombe's a force of nature, really. He's, um, I, was, I was thinking about his contribution to the show. You know, it's, the Goon Show generally is such, is such a positive, spirited thing. And I'm sure that's not because of anything Sellers and Milligan brought to the table, you know, because they were both quite misanthropic in their own ways. It's like um, Seacombe's carrying the entire positivity of the show on his own shoulders, in a way. Mm. It's um, he's really sort of uh, not just the, the center of the plots, but also the center of the spirit of the show. I think. Yeah. So if you didn't have Seekham there, and I'm trying to think, who would you swap him out with? If you had, uh, Kenneth, I don't know. Ken- there's an episode where some. I think it's Dick Emery stands in for him. Yeah, that's um, right. And it's it, that episode doesn't work for me at all. It's Spawn. I think that's the right. pacing's really slow. Um, he, he's somehow operating on a different level or a different level of energy maybe but it's not a good fit uh despite being a very talented performer it's it's just not his um niche i guess well you've got that story obviously you know that um when tony hancock beggared off unexpectedly yeah. uh for what three three weeks something like that um Seacom stood in um on hancock's half hour and i'm just wondering what if the reverse was to happen what if uh Seacom was to uh, go on extended holiday for three <laughs> weeks and tony hancock had replaced him could you imagine that <laughs> my god everybody would have slashed their wrists by the end of the season <laughs> yeah uh, is there a particular kind of gag or recurring joke or even catchphrase in the goon show that appeals to you most i don't know i, I kind of bristle at the catchphrases i think that's them at their worst really because i think it's a little bit lazy uh well i do like when later on in some of the later series they, they've got these established catchphrases and then they decide to subvert them there's one where um i forget what episode it is but uh blood knocks making his usual sort of groaning straining noises and, and there's this noise going on in the background and he's going oh and then yeah. he says it's a river steamer. And it's like, again, it's a, it's a radio joke. It's one that you couldn't do on screen. It's, it's one where the surprise is because the, you've assumed the sound effect is one thing and it turns out to be yes. another thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I like that aspect of the catchphrases. I like when they've established them well enough that they can subvert them and people will be, uh, be able to go along with it and get the joke. When you started getting into Milligan and, and listening to The Goon Show, did that then lead on to checking out things like python the goodies were you into those as well yeah i think i was already into python a bit by then i had the albums which i think everybody of my generation mm-hmm. had rather than the you know tv shows which were long off screen by that point but you know they, the albums were still around in the films you could you could sometimes see uh i was a member of the monty python appreciation society at, at university 
okay. uh, which was a way to see the films. And that was good from that point of view. But when they started sort of reciting the sketches and stuff, I sort of tended to slink away. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really why I was there. I um, I remember that they, I've said this before, they repeated on TVNZ, I think it was at about 89, so you might remember. And myself and um, my best friend at the time, who loved Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, we we uh, recorded, you know, we both recorded every episode of Flying Circus. Yeah. And, and for the most part, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I didn't love uh-huh. it. And, and because it, by that point I was huge fan of the goons i was i was kind of willing myself to love python as much as the goons but it just didn't happen there was just yeah i think those albums are kind of uh a really good way in because uh the 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 tv show is quite uneven in places there's some brilliant stuff and there's a lot of we have to do this to get to the brilliant stuff and the the albums tend to distill a lot of the um the really good bits Um, that's true actually because it yeah i'm the only apart from holy grail which i'd seen up to that point the only time I can remember really doing a real huge belly laugh to some Python product was from, I can't remember which LP it was, but it's got the traffic lights song. Yeah. Uh, the contractual obligations. Right. Album, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, I remember laughing like a loon at that. <laughs> I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. Although my name's not Bamba. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I oh god. Well, what about Peter Sellers? Because we've not really touched on Sellers particularly. Uh, what you know? Were you a fan of the films? Any particular films? I really, obviously, Doctor Strangelove is a masterpiece. Um, mm. uh, some of his Ealing stuff is. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of it. I've got to admit. Right. Um, I think the Lady Killers is brilliant, um, although that's not really peak sellers. Uh, he's he's pretty minor in that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw a lot of the Pink Panther films when I was growing up, and they were fine. I wasn't really a rabid fan. I had a friend who um, listened to The Goon Show at the same time I was listening to The Goon Show, and we compare notes the following day at school. Okay. And he was very much team sellers. He was much more into the sellers end of it, and I was much more team Milligan. Right. Um, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we, we we sort of came to it from different directions. What would you say with this episode? I'm, I'm conscious of the fact we've not talked about this this particular episode very much. Um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to talk. See, I always say I don't want to. I don't want to do a podcast where I'm just breaking down each scene and talking about each scene because you can't really do that with the Goon Show because then you you started to lapse into doing the voices and and just uh, regurgitating yeah. the gags. Um, also, you're at risk of dissecting too many frogs. You know, if, yeah, you, if you break the jokes down too much, it's it's it kills it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but would you say that this would be a good one for a first time listener, or would it be too impenetrable? Well, I think so, just from the fact that it it was a good way for me to get into it. Yeah. it's got a fairly coherent plot. So if you if you're not used to some of their wilder, less structured shows, this is a good sort of hold your hand through the plot kind of episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's got that atmospheric hook to get you in, in the, at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I think it's 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 a pretty good one. I wonder what the best one to get into it all told would be. Maybe one of the early fifth series ones. I always say... that's kind of like a reset of the series in a way because it's um uh, it's the first 
one where they have the characters in the script as their own characters. So mm. they're, they're clearly defined by that point. Um, I, I, I always have it in my head that the best or one of the best shows to sort of start someone off with is The Flea. Um, the Samuel is, Peeps one. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, a, a same series as this series seven, and um, uh, I had um, I've had a couple of American guests, um, Manning Kroll actually came on to talk about the Muppet Show, Spike and Peter on the Muppet right, Show, right? Yeah, and he'd never heard the Goons before. Uh, you may have heard that podcast, and so I suggested yeah. I suggested th- uh, was it three or four shows for him to listen to just to kind of try and get an in, if you know what I mean. And the flea, I think was the one that he said was, was the, the most accessible. Right. Uh, I do think series seven is, is possibly the best way in generally um, because it's sort of like the sweet spot between narrative coherence and fully rounded characters being sort of doing ambitious things with the medium. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I think yeah. series seven is my favorite of, of all the series that we've heard. I mean, I've, I've not heard obviously, Hardly, I've hardly heard any series. Well, not heard any series one. I've heard a couple of Benteen, uh, yeah, really scratchy, really poor quality yeah, Benteen same. episodes. Uh, I, I don't know. I think series seven is just before they start to kind of the wheels start to come off a little bit in terms of yeah um, discipline. Yeah, they've got quite tight direction here, I think, and some of their more self indulgent tendencies aren't as indulged as they as they later became. Well, Peter Peter Eaton was had, had come in as producer before Series Seven, obviously, and and I think he had really instilled uh, a lot of discipline, and I think Spike really valued Peter Eaton's uh, guidance, and then Peter yeah, Eaton, what was that line that um, Milligan said? I think Peter Eaton had a dramatic background. I think it was the song. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that when I heard that for the first time. I didn't. I don't think I even knew what the song was when I was fourteen. Dis- <laughs> disgracefully. Uh, but Peter Eaton left. Obviously, I think it was a, it was a sort of end of series six around that time. And then Pat Dixon came came in, and I think Pat Dixon was was less. Uh, he was a bit of a, a, a bit more easygoing than Peter Eaton as a producer. But right. but I think that the, the 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 influence of Peter Eaton sort of remained certainly into series seven, and by series eight when they had a chopped and changed producers throughout series yeah. eight. Yeah, yeah, it was it was all over the place. Uh, and then, of course, uh, towards the end, they had John Browell, and I think John Browell was a really good producer for them. Right. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, I don't know. There's a line from um, Bloodnock that I I jotted down just because it tickled me when Valentine Dial says after Bloodnock shows up uh, being hounded by um, police dogs or whatever it is, I wouldn't like the dogs to get my scent, and, and Valentine Dial goes, I wouldn't like anyone to get your scent, <laughs> and Bloodnock just says. You are not my best friend, which that line just cracks me up. I don't know why. It's just I, the way he says it, I think. I Yeah, that's a line that since, I've, since the first time I heard the show way back when, I didn't understand. I mean, I understood the line, but I didn't. It's not a joke. But no, what, it's not. What is it? What, it's it's like Milligan couldn't think of anything couldn't think of anything better to write. So just <laughs> it was almost like that was a that was what they call it a placeholder uh, line. I suppose so, but it works. I think it does work in a weird way. It's possibly because um, he obviously wants to say something much much sterner, 
uh, or much more insulting. And he just says, you're not my best friend. It's like the understatement of it just tickles me. Yeah. There's a line earlier when uh, Seagoon arrives at the house and he first meets Valentine Dial. In, and I, can't, I haven't got it to hand here, but, he, but Seagoon makes some crack. And <laughs> Valentine Dial says with disdain, I have no wish to know that, sir. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like um, uh, a music hall sort of cross-talk bit yes. when the, somebody would deliver a punchline and then the other person would say, I don't wish to know that. Yeah, well, they but just that. the way he says it with this kind of his lugubrious tones and yeah. the, the sort of barely concealed contempt is wonderful. Yeah, so I, I think we've kind of, as I say, we've not really talked too much about this particular episode, but we've talked about the goons, and you know that's the main. Well, I think thing. it was, you know, the point of it is is that it's a way in to talk about the goons more generally, isn't it? Yes, I mean, absolutely. That's absolutely. they're always enjoyable to listen to. So hopefully, yeah. this one will be as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, uh, in terms of yourself, uh, you know, are you busy working now? Have you got any sort of forthcoming projects, or you know, what's what's keeping you occupied at the moment? At the moment, I'm doing a historical graphic novel for uh, First Second Books, who are a publisher um, that's an imprint of Macmillan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I'm not writing it, I'm just illustrating it, but it's um, sort of going to take me up until sort of middle of next year. So that's what's keeping me busy at the moment. Uh, I'm also doing uh, my daily strip, which I sort of, it's just a diary strip that I, it takes me about an hour every morning before I start work properly. I'm going to fling that up on the internet. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, if you go to my Twitter feed at Hotel Fred. Um, Love it. <laughs> yes, Hotel Fred, yes. Um, uh, so that's where you can see that. Um, uh, I've also got a book of the first year of those out at the moment, which I've self-published. Okay. And you can get that from my website at hotelfred.com. Great. Um, I'll put, it uh, I'll and, put a yeah, link to I've it got, as well. Uh, yeah, my web store's got a few of my other comics there as well. So if people want to find out what I do, um, that's maybe a good place to look. Various things are still in print, like the Muppet, Muppet book is in print, I think. Um, there's a big omnibus of the Muppet comics I did. Uh, Fred the Clown is in print. That's sort of my own character that I, I did sort of a web strip uh, uh-huh. for about five years. Yeah. And that's in a collection. So yeah, if, if, you, if you want to find what I'm doing, it's, it's easy enough to find. And you're great. I mean, I love, I love, you know, I'm not into comics, but I do admire people that can draw really well and draw cartoons really well. And you've got a fantastic style. You've got a very distinctive, fantastic style. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I really do recommend that uh, people check that out. So, Roger, listen, thank you so much for, for, for joining me today. And um, I'd love to have you back sometime, maybe, to talk about, I don't know, uh, if not another Goon Show, maybe something else that, you know, maybe a Spike project or. Yeah, something, something like Goons that. adjacent. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, yeah, thank, thank you uh, and uh, talk again. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, I'll be back next time with more of this kind of stuff. Uh, Take care of yourselves and bye. Bye.